Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for June 2018. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Eloise Ross. Hey, Mark. And in our rotating third chair this month, we have writer and academic Tara Lomax. Tara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Hi. So today... On our show, we're going to be discussing the latest entry into the Oceans franchise, which is Oceans 8, a film in which Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett assemble a team of tricksters to pull off a heist at the Met Gala Ball. We'll then revisit one of the great classics of silent cinema, G.W. Pabst's 1929 film Pandora's Box, which made an icon out of its star Louise Brooks and is currently playing at the BFI and across the UK through June and July. Finally, we're going to turn to our third chair and discuss the development and durability of the film franchise as the most prevalent and incredibly successful mode of production, specifically emerging out of Hollywood. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations for the month of June. And for patrons of Senses of Cinema, in our bonus today, we will discuss the latest dossier that's just gone up on Senses of Cinema that focuses on our own specific relationships with film. So Eloise Tara and I will explore the films that exist in our own personal film canons. So now let's get things underway. Gary Ross was the director who kicked off the Hunger Games franchise, and now with Ocean's 8, we see him potentially kicking off another franchise with this film. Taking something of a sidestep from the initial trilogy of films, Ocean's 8 features Sandra Bullock as the sister of Danny Ocean, who is played by George Clooney in Soderbergh's Ocean's 11, 12 and 13. Debbie Ocean, played by Bullock, on her release from prison, calls upon her ex-partner Lou, who is played by Kate Blanchett, to plan a jewellery heist at the Met Gala. And that drives them to recruit a range of characters with specific heist skills, played by big names such as Helena Bonham Carter, Rihanna and Sarah Paulson, with Anne Hathaway as Daphne Kluger, the narcissistic, oblivious stooge in their operation. It aims to breathe new life into the ocean's world that Soderbergh built up during the noughts. So, Eloise, do you think it succeeds? It depends what you mean by succeeds. I mean, I think as this awesome movie just for a whole bunch of really great women to hang out and be stylish and be funny and get along and for uh, the film itself to be kind of slick and good looking and fast paced and a great assemblage of a whole bunch of kind of um, cinematic things, I think it does succeed. As an entry into the overall heist movie genre, um, I don't really think it adds anything at all to the genre. Um, I don't really think it speaks to the genre or has awareness or any interest in actually contributing to the film, to the genre itself with the film. I think it's more of a standalone, like gender flipped kind of um, set piece more than anything else. Um, and maybe we can talk about a few of the reasons why um, in a little bit. But Tara, what do you reckon? Yeah, like I think jumping off what you just said, um, I think definitely I agree that it doesn't necessarily contribute anything new or revisionist to the heist genre. But I think what's more interesting is the way that it sort of uses that heist genre as a sort of background to sort of explore some more interesting kind of things. I mean, there's so many levels to enjoy this film, like at least for me personally. Um, And I sort of went into it obviously thinking about it as... I enjoy heist films, so I went into it for that kind of pleasure. But, of course, I'm also thinking about what is this contributing to the franchise that it's already set up? And I think it does some things really quite interesting. And I definitely agree that it's it's standalone in the sense of how it contributes to the genre, in the sense of it not necessarily being connected to any kind of, yeah, you know, revising of the genre. But it does 
do some interesting things with franchise storytelling. And that's that it's it's not a traditional genre that we associate the franchise with. You know, we're very much thinking about franchises mainstream-wise with, um, obviously, fantasy, science fiction, superheroes, right? But, you know, but there are other genres that have engaged with this franchise world-building mode. You know, even something like the Bourne franchise, mm. you know, with the thriller political. Or, yeah. I was thinking yeah. about, like, James Bond, which yeah. is a long yes. exactly. franchise, which yeah. is yeah. crime and, like, a little bit of heist maybe, but has that comedy element, which is yeah. so important to this film. I mean, it's not a serious heist film. Mm. It doesn't no. come from a serious background in that sense. Yeah. No. Um, but I guess what Bond does differently, I, not necessarily the newer sort of Daniel Craig era of Bond, but traditionally Bond hasn't tried to create a cohesive world, sure. a continuity. It's doing that now, you know, the last, this sort of last phase that we're seeing in this contemporary period. But traditionally it hasn't tried to create some kind of, you know, continuity that connects the dots. Yeah. But yeah. I think that's what Ocean's... Eight has tried to do, which I think is interesting. And like Sandra Bullock has talked a lot about this, you know, I was going into it thinking, is this going to be a spin-off? Is this going to be a reboot? You know, a gender flip yeah. reboot. And a lot of the reviews have talked about it in very different ways. Some have mm -hmm. talked about it as a reboot slash sequel because they don't really, it seems people don't really know how to plot it, yeah. right? Storytelling wise, it is a sequel. Right, mm. it references yep. Danny it Ocean and and where he is in this kind of timeline. And we have Elliot Gould show up at the beginning, absolutely, yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. And so it kind of is trying to, you know, be a continuity. But at the same time, Ocean's Eight, it, it, it's sort of insinuated it may be a prequel, mm. you know, in terms yeah. of those numbers. So I mean, obviously, it's trying to go for an eight, nine, ten. To then sure. match up, yeah. which That's I thought, funny. which I thought I was quite interesting in the sense of then when it's all complete, the, the female trilogy is going to come first <laughs> yeah. in terms of the numbers. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, in terms of story continuity, it's after. So I, th I think that's fascinating. Well, that actually, okay, right. You're almost convincing me that I like this film more than I okay. did. <laughs> <laughs> in that, I mean, I think I'm with you, Eloise. In that, I found it really entertaining for the two hours or however long it goes. I'm like, oh, this is really fun, and it ended and it went away. Uh, which isn't to say that I didn't enjoy it while I was watching it, but it didn't feel like it had anything, apart from a couple of things that I quite enjoyed. You know, it didn't really, it's not a film that I'm going to be hanging on to and wanting to go back to. But, I mean, what you're suggesting, Tara, is that maybe you almost need to think about this film in terms of setting up perhaps a potential trilogy mm. that at the end, when we get to Ocean's 10, is that when Danny Ocean is in prison? and then comes out of prison at Ocean's Eleven, which would kind of be a really fun way to start thinking about how this would absolutely then start, you know, really yeah. playing with revising yeah. that kind yeah. of continuity of storytelling. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same time, I'm almost thinking, who else could come into it in, sure. in future sequels? Yeah. You know? I mean, the, th yeah. the thing with that is, like, you know, we talk about this with other franchise films as well, and we'll probably talk about it later mm. in our third segment, but, you know as a standalone film, is it is it enough that it's going to contribute to some great narrative over three or even six films, but not really do enough on its own yeah. Yeah. to kind of stand alone and be worth worthwhile of two hours? Yeah. You know, it's like that kind of question, which is really troubling. And I think maybe it's suggestive of some form of laziness. I mean, if that is the overall goal that on in three films, yeah. it's going to make a whole lot of sense mm -hmm. rather than actually having that, you know, that trajectory of... Um, doubt and high stakes and then satisfaction all within yeah. your one two-hour narrative. I, I couldn't quite decide whether I was happy about the fact that it does the heist narrative down to the letter. There is 
not one thing that's surprising about this at all, even down to the surprises, because you know that there are going to be twists and surprises and you know they're all coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've seen more than one heist film in, in your past, you know, you know precisely what's, what's mm-hmm. going to happen. So there's no play with that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't quite decide whether I sort of almost enjoyed the fact that they said, you know what? If the guys did it, we're doing exactly the same thing. Um, but we're going to do it better. I mean, they do they do do it better in the sense that there's no there's no danger in this film. There's no doubt that it's ever no. going to end up the way you want it yeah. to. And that's and I wonder whether and maybe this is me giving them a, a get out of jail free card, you know, so to speak. But that there's that line where. Um, Sandra Bullock says, no, I don't want any guys in this. Mm. Guys draw attention to themselves. Women go under the radar, so I want this to be all women. Whether that line kind of excused the the plot just being so straightforward mm. and simple in this film yeah. to say that women are, like, just better. They're yeah. smarter. They're, they're, you know, kind of less suspicious. They They think about things differently. You know, and that that's kind of suggests why, in fact, there was no, you know, there's no down in this. There's nothing to bring up the, the excitement when they, you know, finally reached that end So I guess on that point, then, it almost feels like when we just said that it doesn't do anything new with the genre, mm. but in some ways it's doing something new in the way it's deploying the formula of the sure. genre. It's sort of saying, well, hey, you know, you know the formula um, and we're so competent you know we're going to pull this off. You know, we're so good at our our job. We're so good at what we do. And that's the whole thing, right? She starts off with, you know, it's in the trailer as well. You know, why do you need to do this? Yeah. (laughs) Because that's what I'm good at, you know. Well, well, I mean, I almost read that the the entire film, I mean, the the heist thing is, is kind of really rote. It's really formulaic. You know everything that's going to happen. I ended up, as I was watching it, feeling more, I was more in my own head thinking about, all of this kind of extra stuff that had nothing to do with the narrative because the narrative was so transparent that I kept thinking, I like watching these women do the things. Mm, yeah. Had nothing to do with yeah. characterization, had nothing to do with narrative. It's like, I think, you know, Helena Bonham Carter's awesome <laughs> and I love the fact that she turns up at the Met Gala Ball looking exactly as she normally does, like she's been pulled through a rose bush backwards. Come at a Tim Burton, yes. Tim Burton yeah. film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, Completely. awesome. I'm. Yeah. They must have had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah. A lot of it felt yeah, to Rihanna me... Yeah, Rihanna doing that, you know, exactly. Aquafina being yeah. the cool kind of, you know, chick from Queens. Yeah, yeah and almost just... that sense that, like, can we stop pretending that this is a film? Like, at mm-hmm. no point do I think of their character names. They are just the actors. I'm just watching some actors goof around and be funny. It may as well be Saturday Night Live. Uh, and I almost feel like that stuff where, you know, oh, well, when women do it, women do it differently. Mm-hmm. And if it's men, men always take all the attention. It's like I almost felt like, can we stop this being a movie? And could you just, like, talk to us and say, hey, you know what? how Hollywood works? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know. I was thinking about that. And it's so true that, you know, they're all themselves and the advertising for this, you know, that original shot that was released of the eight women on the subway carriage um, where they were just sitting and hanging out and, you know, you could, you know, essentially point to them and be like, I'm really excited about every single one of these people in this film. You go back to the original Ocean's Eleven in 1960 and it's the Rat Pack, you know. Mm, I mean, it is more of a traditional heist narrative. There's more story to it. It's kind of more complicated in some ways. But essentially, it's just all these dudes who you love because they have these incredible star personas Mm -hmm. that they're just playing themselves to the extent that they are their persona. Um, and that that's what that film is doing originally. And you move later to the Soderbergh 
um, you know, trilogy. And there is a bit more to it. But at the same time, you know, they're all super, super famous people. It's the same thing. George right? Clooney is himself. Being George I mean, Clooney. he's the That's suave right. guy. Yep. Um, he's the same guy, you know, that we saw in Out of Sight. Yeah, instance, Brad Pitt's doing the kind of slightly time. suave but slightly but, goofy you know, thing. It, you I know. might go so far to even say that the women in Ocean's 8 are all in their own right higher star power than all the men that were. I mean, yeah, of course, Clooney, you know, um, Brad Pitt. But there were also some sort of up and coming, mm-hmm. you sure. know, actors in Ocean's Eleven, yep. which obviously became, they became famous as a result yeah. of that. But all these women in Ocean's Eight, they're, they're all, all wow, you know? Well, I mean, I don't know about Aquafina. Aquafina, yeah, she's, she's what I'm thinking on, as well. But, way, but uh, She's know? the, isn't, well, no, Rihanna's pretty young as well, but I think she's the youngest, but, you know, she has done yeah. a lot. You know, she's an independent. Yeah. Um, her demographic, of, no, like, knows her, yeah. you know, yeah. for what she, what she does. And Mindy Kaling, I mean, yeah. Yeah. like, there, yeah. to be honest, there wasn't any one character on screen of these women who I was just like, oh, next. I enjoyed every single one of them. Yeah. And I was always aware that it was them. Yeah. Yes. They were was, never a character. Yes, they were just themselves. Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, and, and I was having this battle with myself. Do I care about that? Mm. And in the end, I'm like, look, Kate Blanchett gets to wear a lot of eyeliner and speak mm. with her own accent, accent. thankfully, yeah. Yeah. for the first time ever. It's like almost, I was more conscious of the fact of, of looking at somebody like Kate Blanchett and thinking, I don't need to take her seriously. Yeah. She's just up there <laughs> she doing her thing and I don't have to be, oh, what an amazing performance, Kate Blanchett, no yep, yep, famous yep. Australian. Um, it's just like, oh, yeah, like she's being goofy. Mm. I mean, the where I sort of started to, to get a little bit annoyed was that there just isn't enough for all of them to do. And I've got a real fondness yep. for Helena Bonham Carter. I love that woman to tiny bits. And she gets a couple of little bits of business that are really funny. And then you don't see her for the rest of the time. And I'm like, mm. seriously, everybody gets like three scenes and then I feel like disappear. she had more than some of the other yeah. characters. She did. She which, did. Yeah. Which still was not great. enough for me. And she still, she had a, she had a goal. She had motivation that was justified. Whereas a lot of the other characters, I mean, Rihanna, maybe she just loves to be a hacker and she's just yeah. like, yes, I'm going to take advantage of a whole bunch of dumb people. Um, but, you know, Aquafina, you don't really get why she cares about, like, no longer being a skateboarder in Queens mm. and, like, wants billions of dollars. Yeah. Or millions, I should say, you know. Anyway, let's not get carried away. <laughs> um, but, you know, some of them don't really yeah. get, you don't really get that understanding of why they're risking, essentially, a whole lot to do this thing apart from, and, I mean, maybe it's as simple as that, apart from it just being, like, Maybe they knew it was going to be awesome to hang out in this loft, you know? And, like, that's fair enough. Like, that's what we're essentially going into it for. Yeah, it's literally like a whole bunch of people I really like just hanging out and saying some lines. And that's, I mean, that's almost kind of my the pleasure that I took away from it. Had nothing to do with the film. Like, mm. hey, look, they just talk to each other. That's cool. Mm. And that was almost enough. Yeah. It's something, a kind of thing I've always loved about heist movies is that just that that those scenes where they're all in a room planning. Yeah. Mm. yeah You're yeah, going to yeah. do this yeah. and then I'm going to do this. I actually take so much pleasure in those scenes yeah. in the formula. Yeah. So to have those and to have those grounded in this idea of, you know, female kind of, almost like a little bit of a sisterhood kind of community yeah. about it. Yeah. I thought it was quite nice. Yeah. Well, there is... Even a line about a sisterhood, isn't there, towards the end? And I can't mention it because apparently it's a spoiler, but there is something that suggests that, you know, that it means this movie is very aware of what it's doing. And can we see that we're heading towards, you know, as Tara's saying, Ocean's Nine? (laughs) Well, it all depends on the success of this one. Yeah. And the reviews are a bit mixed. And I think it's, I actually think it's quite unfortunate. I think it needs a little bit more 
benefit of the doubt. I, I don't know. I don't I think know. it's as disappointing as people are saying. Yeah, oh, no, I agree. No, 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 I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I had a great time, yeah, to so be not. honest, and I would watch it again just because oh, yeah, I, wouldn't do that. I loved <laughs> them so much. You know, the film is like blah, but it's shiny and it's nice and I love New York. Yeah. And I love Bergdorf Goodman and like mm. I love the Met Gala and I would watch it again. You know, Anna Wintour. You get to see Anna Wintour. <laughs> I with love that, that whole section with her. It's almost like she might even yeah. have a sense of humour. Right? I love the the <laughs> she's in it because they go into the Vogue offices and there's the, that sh- she's like framed from behind and they've done that on purpose because you're meant to think, oh, it's just a standee, mm. yeah. someone with her hair cut. No way Anna Wintour would be in this film. So the first like two lines that she says, it's just from behind yeah. and then it cuts and it's actually her and you're meant to yeah. be like, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> some, speaking of the offices, someone we haven't talked about is Sarah Paulson. What oh. did you guys think of? Because I loved her in yeah, it. I just awesome. loved her in it. More I love so yeah. than anything else actually yeah. I've seen her in, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. And, um, she had a great... A great presence there. Yeah. Again, I wasn't really sure about. I think she needed more backstory. Yeah. Um, in that sense, but but yeah, I I loved her and I loved her attitude and I. But again, somebody like Sarah Paulson, who you're so used to, a little bit like Kate Blanchett, you're so used to seeing her being serious yeah. or being sad or having the big emotional scene. For her just to be a little bit goofy and and mm-hmm. to have something mm-hmm. funny is just such a relief. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Ocean's Eight. Um, maybe in two years' time we'll be back to talk about mm. Oceans 9. Mm. Um, if you want to add to this discussion of Oceans 8, we'd love to hear from you. So head to facebook.com slash cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. Pandora's Box is perhaps most known for Louise Brooks's stunning face and sharp bob hairstyle. Or perhaps it's the other way around. But the film is also recognised as a key work of silent German Weimar period cinema directed by Georg Wilhelm Pabst. It was not Brooks's first film, nor was it the first appearance of her iconic hairstyle, but it is Brooks's most famous film, along with Pabst's Diary of a Lost Girl, also from 1929. In Pandora's Box, she plays Lulu, the mistress of a rich and respected man who is due to marry a woman of his own class. And in trying to break it off with Lulu, he causes a series of, at least to himself, unexpected events. Lulu is a stage performer, a dancer, and in that regard, she is very aware of and in touch with her sexuality and independence as a woman. Brooks gives an incredible performance, not just with her body on screen, but with her facial expressions and tone, something that transfers across at least all of her performances that I've been lucky enough to see. While this is not only Brooks's film, as the cinematography and dramatic style is extraordinary as well, it is right that she is the major name. The film, which was a failure on release in the 20s and has since found its place in the canon of significance, is currently screening at the BFI and other venues from a new 2K DCP from the 2009 restoration of Munich Film Museum's cut. And Pamela Hutchinson, a film writer in the UK, has recently published a BFI film classics book on Pandora's box just last year. So, Mark, why do you love this film so much? Uh, there are a lot of ways. Let me count the ways, <laughs> shall I? Um, I mean, you're 100% right that you have to start with Louise Brooks um, because, I mean, I've seen this film a number of times before but probably haven't seen it for probably the last 15 years or so and sitting down to it again, I mean, there are a lot of things that I, I love about this film 
But the simple fact is that once you see Louise Brooks on screen, the first thing that you are aware of is that it's like she's not in a silent film. She is a woman who in 1929 looks like your friend that you see down the street. She behaves in a way that seems incredibly modern. And, you know, when you compare that with somebody like, say, you know, Lillian Gish, another big kind of silent actor, Lillian Gish is grounded in an image of kind of silent film acting and a silent film look, and everything about Louise Brooks screams modernity. She is free, she's happy, um, she just looks like a modern woman, she behaves, and not a modern 1929 woman, but a, a modern woman from from 2018. Um, you know, she's she's incredibly sort of current and contemporary. I love the way that she doesn't seem to have any borders to her whatsoever, that her behaviour is just about, do I like you? Do I not like you? Now, that's not always a good thing, as we find out at the end of the film, um, because, you know, can we spoil a film from 1929? Can I suggest you don't hook up with Jack the Ripper? Probably not going to end well. But, you know, she's somebody who doesn't care whether you're young or old, if you're rich or you're poor, if you're ugly or if you're hot, if you're male or if you're female, she has no boundaries to her and she is completely and totally and overwhelmingly modern and that's one of the reasons that I love it but there are more. Tara, what did you think? I mean, yeah, absolutely I mean, Louise Brooks absolutely stands out but you guys have both talked about her quite a lot um, my my favourite my favourite thing about um, you know, Pandora's box and Pap's work is his contribution to editing Yeah um, and particularly then what became the whole, you know, classical Hollywood continuity editing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, he has these really famous things of, you know, saying how he cuts in his head. Yeah. Um, and when he sort of started working in Hollywood, um, you know, the studio execs were kind of like, no, where's the more, we need more footage so we can then cut it yeah. ourselves. And he's like, no, but I'm already cutting in my head. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. So he was really able to visualize seamlessness. Yeah. And we really see that in Pandora's box. Yeah. Um, and, that's pretty much my kind of like yeah. favorite thing about this this movie. Obviously, it, there's so much more cinematography is absolutely exquisite. He does this crazy stuff with mise en scène, and that's absolutely. one of the things I love. The I fact mean, that you get all of the characters that are connected to like figurines and stuff in the background. Yeah, that the um, you know the paintings and the sculptures yeah. on their walls. Yeah. There's that at the beginning. There's that. I think it's the the man at the beginning is is juxtaposed with that mouse kind of baby yeah that kind of troll thing which is shigolsh yeah on the mantelpiece yeah. right yeah and and then uh, dr shun who is the the, the um <clears throat> you know kind of i mean she's essentially something like a mistress stroke prostitute mm. um you know and she meets dr shun uh and he is connected to the donkey yes um yep. you know so that you get this great sense of of perhaps throwing meaning against the wall. And so, yeah, you're, you're looking at the actors, but you're also looking at, you know, what are the paintings on the wall? What are the figurines on mm. the ledges and the shelves? Like, what's going on in the background? Because that's having a conversation with the actors mm. as well. Yeah, like, look at the setting, look at what's on stage, look at what's behind, you know, in the wings yeah. um, that everything contributes. And that's particularly, I mean, that that stays. So at the end, you know, she kind of, she falls into destitution and she goes into um, decrepit, London, yeah. Yeah. and that continues. I mean, that richness of mise en scène mm. in yeah. the background, in the darkness, the sh you know that staircase yes. that she has to go up to her crummy 
apartment is, I mean, if you could call it an apartment, you know, it's a room in a boarding house, yeah. I think, Garage you know, or something, yeah. is like still there and it's incredibly wet and just so vivid and amazing. Yeah. But I mean, to pick up from that, you know, the darkness, mm-hmm. I just also found it fascinating that we have, you know, this sort of street film melodrama yeah. in a sort of Weimar kind of expressionistic cinematography style. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just, I really love that kind of blending yeah. of, um, you know, the... Yeah, like uh, the high cinematography. style and yeah. really high key sort of. Yep. A very yeah. kind of re- reminiscent of, I mean, yeah, the cinematographer, um, Gunther Kramp, I think was the, the cinematographer who worked on Osferatu. Mm. So, you know, really I feel like it's reminiscent of that kind of, that style, but at the same time bringing in that, the different genre context, I yeah. thought was really, really fascinating, yeah. that blending. And how did you respond to her as a character? Because that's, that's one of my key things that I find endlessly fascinating about that film. She's an amazing character and completely contradictory. She is. I mean, Louise Brooks was also contradictory, and so you can kind of see that coming in here. And I don't believe that she was the first person kind of chosen or or targeted to play mm. this role, um, but you can completely see that she was just born for mm. it. Interestingly, I was I read P- Pamela Hutchinson, who wrote that, that BFI classics book, wrote an article on the BFI website about the the hairstyle. Yeah. Um, and she, I didn't know this, maybe this is common knowledge, I don't know, but that Bob hairstyle was inspired by Joan of Arc. Oh, you know, really? That, okay. That Louise Brooks was not the first person to do it, but was was very um, notable because she, it went up so high mm. that yeah. the, the razor went up so high and that the hairline was above the um Hairline. The hair was yeah, above yeah, the hairline. Neck, Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, and so that that was really incredible. But that you can make these connections with with between Lulu and Joan of Arc as yeah. these incredible women who were daring, who took chances, who um, maybe established you know the future for other independent women. Yeah. Um, all, and I was really thinking about just that that image of Louise Brooks as um, and she uh, you know ultimately became sort of almost conflated with this character that just in terms of the kind of graphic design of her head and her body, I mean, I think there's a reason why that image of her has endured for so long because it's this fantastic mix between this very severe blackness of her hair, Mm -hmm. the the incredible whiteness of her skin. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of, there's a a, famous portrait of her by probably somebody famous that I can't think of. But Is um, it Harrell, that? Is it, it's the one which she's holding the, the, pearls. the pearls. I don't know if that was him. But and it's this, anyway. or is it Man Ray or maybe? maybe? I don't know. But, I mean, it's it's this kind of incredibly stark contrast between yeah. dense blackness and really bright whiteness that makes her so, just like this perfect um, image for silent cinema because she's, she's graphic uh, in the way that she presents herself, which is so kind of amazing and arresting. I saw another film of hers last year at Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna called, and excuse my pronunciation, um, I'm going to probably speak one of these words with a French accent and the other with a complete um, bastardization of one, um, but Augusto Janine's 1930 film called Prix de Beauté or something, anyway, which I assume means beauty contest or yep. something. Um, but it's a French film and she is so incredible. Again, it's, I mean, the film itself is is beautiful. Janina is a very talented filmmaker. Um, he has such rich mise-en-scene as well. Beautiful melodramas he makes. He just has so much sensitivity. But her story is 
kind of, I mean, similar to something. She's the sim- a, a similar kind of woman, um, has a similar kind of trajectory to Lulu in um, Pandora's box. But just to see her kind of have the same star potential. Yeah. And it's actually commented on in the narrative of this film as well, that she has this star potential yeah. um, that is possibly, you know, her downfall, which is actually, if we look at Brooks's life, maybe yeah. what actually happened yeah. to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And isn't it perhaps you actually said to her during filming that, you know, you are Lulu? Yeah. You know, you this is your life. You will, like a warning, a forewarning, like you will end up like... Yeah. yeah. Something like that. I don't know the exact verbatim quote, but he's yeah. Yeah, she's known for saying sort of something to her during production. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and when you look at how, what Lulu's trajectory in that film is, I mean, she is infantile. She throws tantrums. She's in a lot of ways mm. really unpleasant. She's incredibly callous after mm. she's been essentially involved in a, a murder you know, returning to the house, you know, of her mur- of the murder victim and kind of like, hey, I'm just going to hang out here because this is awesome. Um, you know, she's really callous in other ways. And yet a lot of the destruction that happens around her to the men connected to her is caused by their kind of possessiveness, mm. their desire to mm. try and contain her. And that whole film is about her not being containable. No, there's that incredible shot. It's a close-up of her... Um, or maybe it's a kind of a close up, mid close up of her with um, her the the guy in the same frame. What's his name, Mark? The the, the older the older guy, uh, Doctor Shern. Doctor Shern, yeah. and he's got a gun to her face, yes, and he's right. yeah. threatening her that she needs to kill yeah. herself, and he's holding it in her face, and it's this most incredible shot because it's so tight, yeah, tightly held. And I'm actually, I was actually terrified when I was watching it and I could see her and, you know, in most of the film, even up until the very end, you know, she's so free, she's so enthusiastic, she's so excited all the time, but for her, she's actually terrified and that when he thrusts the gun at her, she flinches. Um, And so it's kind of a a very short, simple, incredible moment where you think nothing that happens to anyone around her is, is her fault. Mm. I mean, it, it kind of is, but you can see that everyone is implicated in the yeah. violence and in the the downfall of of themselves. Yeah, there's a, there's a sequence. One of my favourite sequences, I think, is where uh, Lulu is talking to Alva, who is the the son of Doctor Shern, mm. because it's important to remember that she's basically having sex with the father and the son. Mm. Um, but then her her best friend, um, what's her name, Gershwitz, mm. uh, who is this um, lesbian woman. Um, in this in this film, there's a shot of Gershwitz looking at Lulu, talking to Alva, and she's filled with jealousy and rage. But then as soon as Lulu turns her attention to Gershwitz, Gershwitz is completely besotted and forgets the jealousy and is busy, you know, ready to kind of embrace Lulu as, as the potential lover. And it's this capacity for Lulu to just spin people so quickly with just a look and a flirtatious glance, she can convince you that, that you're the most important person in the world. She even does it to Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Um, and importantly, it's only when that gaze is broken, when when they're sure. not looking at each other, that that things come undone. Yeah, I find that so incredible, that yeah. final moment. And it, it just, I mean, that's really important because it adds to the tragedy of the whole thing and makes you reconsider the entire narrative. I Absolutely. Think. 
So we all, I think, really love this film and can find the value in, in watching it maybe again and again. So hopefully um, this new restoration will find its way to your hometown um, and get a little bit more exposure. Um, if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, please go to facebook.com slash cinema and let us know your thoughts. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. It's fair to say that franchising in cinema is hardly a new thing. We've had sequels and serial storytelling in the cinema since the silent period. And franchises like James Bond, as we've already mentioned, or The Thin Man or the Carry On films, have certainly sustained audiences who have returned to the latest instalment in the series. But I think it's fair to say that we're now in the 2010s, reached peak franchise production, with both the Marvel and DC universes extending narratives and introducing new characters across a whole raft of films. And we've also got things like The Hunger Games or Twilight and Harry Potter, uh, those films using cinema as a slow unfurling of a really long-form narrative through adaptations of popular novels. Now, Tara, we know that you're particularly interested in the world of the franchise, and, you know, there are probably some readers of Senses of Cinema who might be somewhat resistant to the vast franchise cinema movement. So for the uninitiated, for the people who are like, we hate those movies, what do you think are the really significant pleasures that attract filmgoers to that franchise experience? Well, hey, first to start that off, uh, Senses of Cinema did do a Michael Bay dossier. They did do a Michael Bay dossier. (laughs) And Michael Bay is known for the Transformers franchise. um, And you know, love it or hate it, the Transformers franchise does exist in the whole the franchise world. Absolutely. Um, look, you know, franchises are absolutely, you know, the sort of reflection of our dominant Hollywood period. And sort of to answer your question about, you know, why do people find find pleasures in these? I think it's first important to realise that they are situated within Hollywood's ongoing um, objective of finding a sort of formula that works. Right. Yep. So, you know, Hollywood has been interested in doing this since its, you know, early, early days, right? They've always been trying to find ways to make sure they can get their money back. Um, the irony of it is we all know that they you, you never can actually predict the, these things, right? As we can see with, you know, going from Star Wars, The Last Jedi and, you know, everyone loving it or, you know, it, it doing well really financially. And then followed by, you know, Solo recently, only a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, which, you know, hasn't done as well in the box office. So the formula isn't down pat, right? So that's the first thing to sort of establish. But, you know, why do people find pleasures in these films? 
people like going back to something they loved. You know, people, you know, we establish things, we establish a story world, we establish characters, and people take pleasure in going back and seeing more, um, you know, seeing where they can go. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the sort of primary way that people engage, right? And but another reason why people are sort of engaging with these is often to do with the adaptation process of, you know, particularly with Marvel and DC, we're talking about comic books that are really invest, sorry, part of people's childhoods. So, you know, people want to see those sort of stories, you know, on the big screen. They want to see it realised. So it's as much a kind of nostalgia thing Look, where... you can't separate nostalgia from sort of franchise, at least audience engagement of sure. franchises. Um, and so that's absolutely a big a big part in that. Um, and it's obviously can be an issue or positive. It yep. depends on how it goes, you know, goes, goes about. Um, but franchises are not as sort of simplistic as we sort of are led to sort of assume, yep. particularly within a kind of cinema, you know, studies, a cinema like, you know, cinephilic kind of engagement. There's quite a lot to actually admire and realise. It's quite co complex filmmaking. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is because, um, you know, they're very much assumed to be all about repetition. Um, but they're not any more repetitious than any sort of genre cycle or any other sort of um, formulaic kind of film, right? This is a, a different way of expanding expanding those strategies. Is it just more conscious in the that repetition kind of thing, or, or higher expectations of the repetition so we, we're kind of less likely to be fooled by it or something? I mean, there's always going to be more sort of propensity for repetition in, in a franchise. Mm -hmm. um, but the complexity for franchise development, like creative development, is finding the balance between repetition with enough variation that keeps people satisfied. They don't always get it right. Mm -hmm. And so we're, what we are now in is a period where we're seeing strategies emerge that are, you know, more solid. But what we saw more in the sort of 20, the early two, 2000s, but also the 1990s, was what I sort of see as an experimentation with, with this creative strategy. So we saw them making a lot of mistakes. Yeah. You know, mm. we saw a lot of failures. But through those failures, we start to now get a form, and a, a mode that actually is working in a more sort of classical way. See, I'm starting mm. to wonder whether, I mean, here is my theory. Mm. You, you are the franchise expert and I am not. But my theory is I think audiences are going to destroy the franchise because the audiences... Fan culture. Yeah, yeah. that fan culture is yeah. refusing any difference. That at the point where innovation or change occurs, where you, you separate yourself maybe potentially from a source material or you try a different tactic, the audience is so vitriolic and abusive that... And we, which frightens the filmmakers. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think you've already established this is about making money. And that's cool because Hollywood in particular has always been about that. But if you're going to annoy your audience by change, then you don't change. Mm. And isn't there the possibility that although, yeah, we're enjoying this period now, isn't the audience going to kill this entire franchise, particularly, I suppose I'm thinking the superheroes, mm -hmm. isn't that going to kill it off? What's kind of terrifying in that, sorry, just before you respond, Tara, mm -hmm. I want to add, like that studios, in order to make money off fan culture, stoked it and they made it bigger and bigger and bigger. And so maybe in doing that and in just trying to um, like invent this fan conglomerate, you know, they have essentially um, created their own 
created their own downfall, yeah. you know, and maybe that, I mean, that's pretty terrifying to, yeah. to think about. Are you terrified, Tara? <laughs> Terrified of, of the destruction of the the franchise because of yeah I am fandom? because I am just so excited to be living in this current time <laughs> of peak franchise mode. Why? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, uh, please ask. Yeah. <laughs> or, why do you think that this is kind of another question, but maybe related? Like, why do you think that now this experimentation that studios are performing with format is happening within the franchise rather than? within the genre that, you know, in the 40s and 50s, it was genre, Western genre experimentation. Mm-hmm. It was um, crime genre experimentation so that the it's shifted. And, I mean, in, a, in essence, I think the way I see it is it's become less exciting because all of these experimentations are occurring within the same franchise mm. world, universe, rather than a genre which is maybe a bit broader. It's mm. a good question. And there's a very clear answer to that. Mm intellectual property. Sure. So studios can't control genres. They don't own genres, right? But they can, they do own properties. And so now we're seeing, you know, we are in a sort of mega conglomerate era. We're not just in conglomeration right now. We literally have big fish eating big, big fish. Like it's, it's, it's intense at the moment. Right. Um, So there's two layers now to ownership structures. There's owning, you know, subsidiaries, but there's also owning intellectual properties. Um, and a lot of the time we're seeing one studio buy another studio and then they're getting their properties with it. So there's these different layers now of commercial ownership practices. Um, so intellectual properties allow studios to be redefined by their properties. So they're, then they have to, they work within their kind of licensing and their property um, containment, right? So then that allows them to have more return. Um, but with a the genre, they can't. So it's a difference between James Bond, which is a property, versus other films that then play with the, the James Bond formula right. in mm-hmm. other genres, Right. So that's a bit of a difference there between, you know, why studios don't just play with genres because they can't own a genre. They can't have a full trademark on a genre. I mean, I mentioned the Western in the 40s and stuff and studios didn't own genres then, but they certainly had a a, a monopoly on them Mm -hmm. in a sense where, you know, we identify certain genres because certain studios had specific lots or specific actors. Absolutely. And obviously we all know things changed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, in a whole bunch of ways that has possibly led to this new Mm. direction. That's absolutely what I was sort of wanting to sort of get to was that now we are seeing a sort of return in a way to how the studio system worked in the sense of studios now being defined by their their house properties. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I find it absolutely fascinating because now we're also getting a return to that producer as creator role. Yeah. Right, which we call the that we can call the franchise runner is mm-hmm. is a common kind of term. So what we're also seeing now is studios bringing on creative teams to manage the development of properties. Yeah. Right. So it sort of started with um, you know Marvel creating the Marvel Studios having the creative team. Um, then Lucasfilm once they got bought by Disney, they got the the Lucasfilm Story Group. So these are creators. They're a mixture of um, producers, uh, screenwriters, people who have a sort of uh, straddle that kind of, you know, uh, mixed kind of uh, skill set. Um, and then we sort of now see Warner Brothers has a Harry Potter um, franchise development group. Um, James Cameron's uh, Lightstorm has a franchise development group. So this is a trend now in having these teams. So we're going now back to a sort of mm. television style writer's room combined with an old fashioned studio system mode. So, so okay, so let me be the 
the the grumpy old mm. bastard, mm-hmm. um, which is you know my one role <laughs> in life. If we're getting these great like, oh, here comes the writers' room. How can they all be exactly the same? I mean, if if there's a reason why I've just got fed up with, particularly I suppose the superhero films, mm. and and I'm absolutely here. I'm I'm standing for Logan. I'm standing for Thor Ragnarok. Um, I'm even standing for the first Thor, but the rest of them ultimately just drive me crazy because that writer's room is just producing the same thing. It's minute 23, time for our three minutes of banter. Now let's go blow up a city. Here comes the sky funnel. Who's got the magical stones? The end. Um, You know, and, and I'm done with that. Can I return the same sentiment? Fight me, Tara. You're only seeing it as the same because you want to. Well, because it <laughs> is the same. Well, it's not. I mean, you. We're also seeing different genres being used in relation, like in tandem with these sort of property kind of um, styles. You know, the superhero genre has its own formula, yeah, it but it also, you know, is developed um, from the, the Western. It has quite a lot of the Western conventions. It is very much, a, the, you know, the, the Western of our time, which was, again, the mythology of the American mythology of its time. Um, but in terms of the sameness, um, you know, what, what, do you lo- what do you love about Thor Ragnarok? Because I know you really love Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok, um, I felt like, broke that, you know, the, the traditional formula is we need to have that moment of banter at the 23rd minute and the 48th minute and then, you know, mid-explosion, I need to say something quippy and witty, whereas Thor Ragnarok really sustained a kind of comedic approach throughout Mm. the entire thing. Um, And ultimately, it's the only time, the only time in any of the films where I've actually cared about the final battle because I'm always in an explosion coma by the end. Like, I don't care about you blowing up things anymore because I don't think that they're... You know, the first time you ever see a superhero film and they blow up a city, awesome. Once you've seen it a thousand Mm. times, it means nothing. I remember that's why I really liked, and I haven't seen it since it came out, and I actually haven't seen any of the subsequent movies, so I can't comment, but the original Avengers, Mm -hmm. because it was Joss Whedon. It had his humour in it, in the same way as Thor Ragnarok has Taika Waititi's attitude, that, that the Avengers maintained some sense of being an independent property as well as a franchise property. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something I also wanted to respond to in terms of Ragnarok, but it's absolutely, I'm glad you brought up Whedon and the Avengers as well, because this is another aspect of, I guess, what they're still trying to get right and what new directors need to sort of start to realise. Being a director, being an auteur in the franchise model is very different to being an auteur in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. right? So that it's a different mode, but it doesn't mean that they can't also have their own creative vision, right? And so what Watiti done really well was he was able, he, he demonstrated that you can be a sort of in, an individual kind of auteur, have a, that vision within the franchise model. And we're sort of seeing this tension because so many other directors have been fired because they couldn't work well with the studio, right? So there is also that sense of the individual auteur working in relation with that the writer's room. So there are so many different layers to yeah. how these things get developed. Yeah, and when we hear about, I mean, public publicly, when you hear about directors being fired, it's like, oh, because there's no individuality allowed on set, which is obviously not the case no. because it does work. My response to that is it's a different way of approaching individual directorial vision, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean it's out, out the window. 
it's just a different mode and they need, to, they need to learn how to work within the model and still be themselves. Awesome. That was a nice discussion. Yeah. That was my and recommendation to or yeah. franchise. Uh, so fascinated by this. Yeah. So, yeah. all right, just because I'm aware that there might be some people who aren't really on board with a franchise thing, if they were to pick up a franchise and pick a film to start with, Ooh. where are you going to direct them? Because I would direct them to Logan. Um, because I love Logan a lot. Yeah, um, in, in that uh, Logan is atypical, but but that's a really beautiful superhero movie that feels really grounded in a Western in a recognisable kind of form. But where oh, would you go, Tara? Mark, I don't think I can answer that. You can't answer it. <laughs> Logan's interesting because it's you know oh, it's it's not as in, invested in the interconnected world, and I yeah. think that's why Mate, you're loving that, it. That is probably why I love because it. Because another right. issue of why people are resistant to these franchises, and we got this criticism with Infinity War. Oh my God, I have to watch twenty films to yeah. get this one mm, film. Yeah. It's that idea of a self-containment being this kind of pinnacle, and yeah. we saw this with Black Panther, and that so many critics love Black Panther, and the only way they could come to terms with it by saying, oh, because it's not diluted by the other movies. Yeah. For me, the fact that it's connected to other movies was, was is, is, its pow- is its power, yeah. right? Um, so I, I can't answer that, Mark. I'm just going to say I'm okay. sorry. That's, right. yep. Right. Maybe well, you see that when I talk about my canon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, I, I will pump not for the superhero stuff. I'm a bit of a fan of the Hunger Games movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think they're, they're pretty decent. Um, I'm not crazy about the very last one, uh, but if I had to... Go with a franchise. I'm kind of on board with them. I think they're pretty terrific. This is not a franchise recommendation, but it's both Hunger Games and Ocean's 8 related. And maybe I recommend uh, Pleasantville. Why not? It's not a franchise, but same director. Um, great film, everyone. <laughs> not, a franchise. <laughs> not a franchise. Yeah, not a franchise. <laughs> there was no Pleasantville 2. Well, no. Return to Pleasantville. <laughs> Well, obviously, look, my recommendation is Star Wars because I can't be on a podcast talking about franchises and not talk about Star Wars. That that is probably (laughs) a good place to start. All right. If you want to contribute to our discussion on the world of the fran- of franchise cinema or you want to kind of tell us where people should start if you want to climb on the franchise train, head to our Facebook page at censorsofcinema.com and leave a comment on our episode thread. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something, be it a film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and we hope you can find meaningful. It's halfway through 2018 already, if you can believe it, and I know that we've all been doing a lot around Melbourne and in the online landscape recently. So now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this June. Mark? Um, I've been doing a a bit of uh, reading and research on Elaine May, uh, and she's a a really, really astonishing lady. She's still kicking on. She directed four uh, really interesting and and quite different films, uh, culminating in Ishtar, which was, you know, kind of well known as the the big disaster uh, with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, even though, I mean, certainly that film is not a disaster by any means. I think it has its problems, but it's not the grand failure that it was touted as back in the day. Um, I've been looking at some of her early work and her early comedic work that she did with Mike Nichols, who, and both of them obviously went on to be um, incredible directors, independent of each other, but they started out doing stand-up comedy together and I'm just, I would love to drive people onto YouTube because that's fairly accessible, I'm thinking, 
to check out some of the stuff that Elaine May and, and Michael Nichols did together. Certainly some of their skits are up on YouTube that you can check out. There is a wonderful one where they're pretending that they're sitting in a car. They're both teenagers. I think it's called Teenagers, and it's about them trying to, to make out but being too nervous. Uh, the one that I really want people to chase down, though, is the Emmy Awards for, and I want to say it's 1959, I think, where Elaine May comes out to present an award. It is for um, greatest mediocrity, uh, and it is about a, a whole skit where she calls Mike Nichols up onto stage where he receives the award for being the most mediocre writer in the room, that that is a really difficult skill to achieve, to, to not try and achieve greatness, but to just be really, really middle of the road and boring. It is a hilarious skit between the two of them. I would encourage you to check it out. Tara? My recommendations. Uh, so I have two really short recommendations. Um, the first one is um, I've recently been reading the Clever Man comic book issue. Mm. And it came out end of last year. And I've been, I read it as, as part of a research project I'm, I'm currently working on. But it expands the world of the television, the ABC television series. So we've got two seasons of the television series. And just quickly, the, yep. the Clever Man series is what? The Clever, so the Clever Man series is a um, Australian Indigenous superhero television show um, developed by Ryan Griffin um, yeah, for the ABC. And so uh, Gestalt Publishing, which is an independent Australian um, comic book publishing company, they've just recently, re well, recently, like I said, end of last year, released first issue. Um, and I highly recommend this comic book issue. Um, it's still screened because I read it on my uh, digital um, iPads uh, version, so it's still a screen content. Um, so I highly <laughs> recommend that. And my other is a, um, a trailer. The Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, trailer just came out, uh, just hit a couple of days ago. Is that what it's called? It's called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Okay. It is an animated movie. Is there a Spider-Verse? There is, there is a whole... Oh, I'm so excited about this movie. It comes out at the end of the year, but I highly recommend checking out the trailer. Cool. The animation is exquisite, but also the story and the characters. Uh, check out the trailer. And that could, a comic book and a trailer could not be more me to recommend. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, my recommendation is to, uh, or it's a little bit tinged with sadness, is to check out the work of Ukrainian director Kira Muratova, who passed away yesterday or the day before. And uh, while this is shocking in its own sense, it was rather shocking for me because I was talking to a friend on Wednesday night about Tarkovsky and why he's so famous and so much part of the canon. And I said, I think that you know, there are pr probably other Soviet filmmakers who have been somewhat pushed out of the canon because Tarkov Tarkovsky has been lifted up so greatly. And I mentioned Muratova as someone who needed more recognition. And I think it's quite well known, at least amongst her fans, that there's only one book in English about her, I think, like her work isn't screened enough. We screened some of it at the Melbourne Cinematheque uh, about a few years ago, um, but that she needs to be recognised a, a lot more. And I actually said to my friend, Kira Muratova, she's still alive. She's still making films. Um, but she was 83 right. um, when she died and her work is incredible. I want to recommend two films. I actually also written on the Acme website just a few films to see sort of after Tarkovsky, what, what would you see? And I mentioned the, a film that she made in the 80s, I think, called Getting to Know the Big Wide World, which is set on a construction site um, and it's a kind of a, a melodrama in a construction site, but I just really love this, you know, kind of genre experimentation operating in a particular 
kind of Soviet era um, landscape. And this incredible film from the 60s called Brief Encounters, which is maybe again kind of a love triangle, love story type of thing, but just has the most exquisite style, um, brilliant filmmaking, brilliant like mise-en-scene, everything about it. I, I adore that film. So anyway, her work needs to be seen by more people. Um, and I do just want to give her a, a shout out and an acknowledgement um, because she passed away this week. So that's that. Well, that was very sad. Mm. All right. Thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thanks to, of course, Eloise Ross and to our fantastic third chair for this month, Tara Lomax. Thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who with a cheeky sleight of hand turns our incoherent babbling into something this side of comprehensible, which is truly the greatest heist of all. (laughs) Thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we'll speak with you again next month. (laughs) 